Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask you to inspire us today that we might really learn uh, what Gospel of John is all about. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to see things a little differently than we may have in the past. So give us the courage and the strength to set aside personal or preconceived notions and really hear what you hear, you want us to hear. Help us to open our spiritual mind and heart. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. I would like to begin with the beginning. That's a nice place to begin. Uh, Meaning that I'd like to do a review of where we have, or what we have covered in the past sessions. The reason is that in this gospel, more than any other, you have to constantly carry forward what you've learned in the past. Because this gospel is not written in a chronological order or a biographical order as the other gospels are written. This gospel is written for a specific reason. And that reason really is to point to you and to Christ as God, the face of God, or the God's representative on earth. That God came to earth for a specific reason, and it is that reason that we must keep in mind all the time. And that reason really is stated in chapter 3, verse 16. It says, so God so loved the world that he gave his only son that we might have life and have it in abundance. And if you think about the word abundance, for example, the reference really goes to the woman at, uh, at uh, or rather, the wedding feast at Cana, where Christ turned the water into an abundance of wine, far more than is needed. And there are a lot of little things like that that I want to bring out to you in case you missed him or didn't catch him in the first place or forgot or whatever. So let's go back, do briefly, and I want to cover this. I hope you all have your hand out. The prologue. The prologue of John is unique in all of the Gospels and all of the writings of the New Testament. It gives you a brief idea of what the Gospel is going to present to you. And it starts out by saying, in the beginning, which is the same words that the book of Genesis begins with. And it is sort of a reference to the fact that he is, he, meaning God, is starting his plan of salvation over again. Remember I've said in the past couple meetings that the Jewish people and Judaism in general was begun for the purpose of hearing God's word and then sharing it not only among themselves, but with the neighboring nations. 
And they refused to do that. Over and over, down through uh, Moses and King David and all of the prophets, etc. The one purpose that they were intended to do, the one purpose that they were chosen to be the chosen people, they failed at. And that was to share the messages that they received from all of those people that I just mentioned, particularly the prophets, uh, with those neighboring nations. And yet they did just the opposite. So the idea of John repeating the words in the beginning is sort of a signal in a way that he's starting over. And that is he's starting his plan of salvation over through Jesus Christ. And the Jewish people or Judaism in general sort of went off to do their own thing. They became sort of the face of an earthly uh, faith, earthly religion, you might say, that had very little connection with God himself. Uh, The Jewish people, even today, do not. Uh, enjoy the understanding or the privilege of having a personal relationship with God. They don't really uh, profess that nor encourage it. It is strictly whatever you see is what you get, so to speak. All right. So the prologue really kind of brings that out. It talks about Jesus is God. Jesus has come to earth for a reason. And that reason really is to get people straightened out and to be the uh, salvation of mankind. It talks also about John the Baptist, who was quite well known at that time and was sort of the uh, personification, you might say, of the legend of the return of Elijah. But he was not God. And this gospel goes into quite... Uh, a bit of effort in the first chapter to point out, and John himself says he is not a prophet, he is not Elijah, he is only one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. In other words, remove the obstacles, remove the, uh, the objections you might have of accepting a spiritual God coming to earth. And then he points out to his uh, followers, this is John the Baptist now, points out to his followers that they should encourage, should be encouraged to uh, transition from the Baptist to Christ uh, as followers. Uh, Then we get into the wedding feast of Cana. The Gospel of John only presents seven miracles which John calls signs, and it's because he is using just those seven, not because they are so particularly great in themselves, but they represent a way into a teaching. So each of the seven has a significant teaching that goes along with it, and that is what we have to focus on. The miracles themselves prove that Jesus is God. And through that, we learn why and how and so forth 
that God wants us uh, to respond. The next part was the cleansing of the temple. The temple, you might say, represented the uh, whole idea of God, and the Holy of Holies represented God himself. And it was the Jewish people who put this up, and it was King David who really uh, wanted to build this temple, but he didn't get to do it. It was his son Solomon built the original temple, and which was destroyed by the Babylonians, and then rebuilt by Herod the Great uh, in the first century B.C., and then was destroyed in 70 A.D. It was destroyed, why? Anybody know why it was destroyed? Because it showed the end of God's acceptance of Judaism as a way of salvation. Yes, Howard? Yes, it was, and Howard pointed that out, it was a way of signifying that the first covenant now was withdrawn because after working with the Jewish people for 2,000 years from Abraham down to Christ and then having the Jewish rulers reject God himself in the person of Jesus, then God said, no more that the covenant was then withdrawn and restated through Christ and the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Yes? Yes, yes. Uh, and that's really the, one of the significant things of this particular section uh, in chapter 2 that God was not just in the temple, God was within us. And we'll see that again uh, today in uh, chapter 5. Okay. So there are several things that this gospel uh, points out that the others did not. All right? And it really makes you kind of search below. One of the significant uh, things you might say is in this gospel, water is going to be a major uh, reoccurring factor in what we um, will be accomplishing and what we'll be studying. The fact that when Christ uh, changed the water at the wedding feast, uh, so much water into wine. Okay? It was the water of purification, that is the water used for cleansing feet and hands, etc., actually then was turned into the wine of salvation. And you're going to have those kinds of transitions uh, come up quite often. And we'll see that again as we get into uh, things today. Uh, again, the first 11 chapters of this book are called the Book of Signs. But I like to also call them the book of changes because what Jesus is trying to do is to get these stiff-necked people as he calls them to change their mind and their heart to see that it is not just what is on this earth as
as a physical thing, but what the mind and the heart really contain. So with that, let's get into... Uh, <coughs> let's go to chapter 4. Here's an interesting story of the Samaritan woman. Let me give you a little background on why the Jewish people uh, so disliked the Samaritans. You know the famous story, of course, the, the good Samaritan, the poor guy that was mugged on the, his way to Jericho. Of course, I'm using modern language in that one in the case, but you, you know that story. And there are a number of other references, both good and bad, to the Samaritans. All right, let me give you a little background on why. Back in the 8th century B.C., Israel was split into two kingdoms, the north and the south. The northern part was called Israel, and the southern part or southern kingdom was called Judah. Okay. The northern was run uh, by a variety of kings who only got more involved in all kinds of debauchery and other unfavorable things. And eventually God, through the prophets, warned them that they were going to be wiped out if they didn't change their ways. And they didn't change their ways. So you had an Assyrian king who decided that he wanted to conquer that part of the country. And so uh, in 722 B.C., uh, he conquered all of the northern kingdom. And what he did was take many of the people there who could do his people some good, that is, all the tradespeople, the educated people, anyone who could serve in some uh, profitable capacity back in Assyria, that is Mesopotamia and northern Turkey now. Uh, and so he carted those people off as slaves. Then what he did was he brought all the jailbirds and the nerdu goods and the vagrants, etc., etc., that was in his country, and he put them back into Samaria. All right, now, you got the picture? He took the good out of Samaria, carted it off, brought the not-so-good, and brought them back in. Well, these people tried to assimilate into Judaism and to the local people, but they were never accepted. Part, again, of the exclusivism of the Jewish uh, faith. And so they were never accepted, even though they tried, in many ways, to become, excuse me, part of Jewish, uh, the Jewish culture. And it got so bad that there was even a war between them back around the fourth or fifth century, and the Jewish people in Jerusalem would not come to their help. So they decided, that is the people in Samaria, decided that they were going to just uh, forget about the Jewish people of Jerusalem 
And so they, they built their own temple on Mount Garrison. Uh, and they tried to do the best they could. They intermingled, but it was they were never accepted by uh, the Jewish people who always considered them uh, as foreigners. All right. In fact, they're often called foreigners in various writings of the New Testament. So that's the scene that we want to uh, that we find ourselves in chapter four. Now, the problem here is that you had true Jews that lived in Galilee above Syria or uh, the Samaria, I should say. And whenever they would come down to Jerusalem, the easiest way would to be go through Samaria, but they wouldn't do that. In most cases, they would cross over the Jordan, come down on the east side of the Jordan, and then back through Jericho over to Jerusalem, which always took them a couple of days longer to make the trip. In this particular case, Jesus is going from Jerusalem up to Galilee. So instead of going around, he's going through Samaria. Okay, so you got the picture? All right. Now, he meets this woman at the well. This is Jacob's well. Again, a little bit of connection with water. All right. This is sort of the scene of previous um, male-female wooing sites. All right, Rachel and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and so forth all met at various wells, okay? So it became sort of a cultural thing that for a man and a woman to meet at the well was sort of a, a meeting point to strike up a relationship, okay? Now, Jesus is not there for that purpose, or is he? Let me digress for a minute. Well, let's go on and then I'll come back because it's more important that we talk about what's here and then what we don't see but is also here. Okay. He strikes up this conversation with this woman, which was a big cultural no-no. Uh, Jewish people would not engage um, with conversation with a Samaritan. And to have a man, a Jewish man, talk to a, Jew, a Samaritan woman, that was the height of impropriety. My, that was just a, a terrible thing to do. So he's there, he's tired, he's, you know, been on the road, you might say. His apostles went into town to get food and so forth. So he's there alone. And he asks her for a drink. She comes to the well around noon, it says, which is the wrong time, again, culturally speaking. And she brings her empty water jar uh, to gather water to take back. And he asks her for a drink. And she says, well, you know, you're a Jew and you're asking me, a Samaritan? And he said, yeah. He says, I'm asking you. Uh, the whole idea here, this conversation between uh, Jesus and this woman, 
is sort of, Jesus is trying to woo not only the woman for religious purposes, but eventually we'll see that he's trying to woo all of the Samaritan people back into the fold of thinking according to his way of thinking. So as the conversation goes on, she gets deeper and deeper into her personal life, and then it switches from one thing to another, and you have a different purpose. The original starts out with living water. When she questions him about why he's asking her for water, he said in a way that he would be able to give her living water. Now, living water is a euphemism, you might say, for spiritual grace. But it's also considered in Jewish thinking as what we would consider running water. In other words, running from a fast brook or something that is constantly moving rather than water out of a well that's been sitting there for a while. And she misunderstands that, of course. Um, You can't expect her to understand what he's talking about. Uh, You know, so they are miles apart in their thinking, but he's doing it purposely. He's trying to get her to see that he is not only talking about the physical water, but he's talking about grace, all right? The grace of the Holy Spirit. So they get into this uh, conversation about uh, the living water, and she talks about, well, you don't have any method of how how to get water out of the well, how you're going to do that, and all of that stuff. So uh, then he transitions to something else. says, you people worship what you do not understand. But we, that is the Jewish people, worship what we understand because salvation is from the Jews. Well, that word, that translation is from the Jews, um, I don't particularly like. Uh, it would sound better if salvation was through the Jewish people or through the Jews, but not from the Jews. Uh, because in our modern English, uh, that sounds that the Jewish people gave them something that they didn't, really. Uh, but Judaism is the basis for Christianity, and we must not forget that. She says, uh, I know the Messiah is coming, the one called the Anointed. When he comes, he will tell us everything. And Jesus says to her, I am he. Uh, The word I am, this is the first time it's used in this gospel. But later on, you will see, and throughout this gospel, it's used 20 or 30 times. And the background for that usage is, those are words that a true Jew would never say because it represents God's name. If you go back to the story of Moses at the burning bush in the book of Exodus, when 
Moses goes to see how this bush could be burning and yet not being consumed. He meets God in the fire. And he, God tells Moses, he wants Moses to go back to the Pharaoh and get his people released out of Egypt. And Moses, after a little bit of conversation, says, well, if I do that, what authority, what background do I have? Who is it that I can tell the Pharaoh that I should do there, he should do this? And God tells Moses, tell them that I am sent you. And this is, in Hebrew, how Yahweh comes into play. Right? I am who am. W-H-Y-H. Okay. And then that's how Yahweh uh, came to be. So the word I am was sacred to the Jewish people. And yet Jesus now uses that here for the first time, but like I said, 20 or 30 times throughout this gospel, and you'll see it several times uh, later on. I just had to point that out because it's important. It doesn't appear to be important here, but it is as we progress through this. So at that moment, uh, the, uh, the disciples returned and were amazed that he was talking with a woman, and a Samaritan woman at that. But still no one said, what are you looking for, or why are you talking to her? The woman left her empty water jar there. Emptiness in this case refers to, or is a metaphor, or symbolic of an empty faith. And went into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything that I have done. Remember, he asked her to go home and bring his, her wife or her husband back. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, You have spoken truthfully. In fact, you've had five husbands, and currently the man you're living with isn't your husband. And, of course, she then realizes that he's a prophet more than she expected. And uh, he <clears throat> says, The woman left her water jar and went home uh, into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I've done. Could he possibly be the Messiah? They went out and came to him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And so the disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. Underline the word, the one who sent. Because that phrase will be used often throughout this gospel. And it refers back to what I've said. The idea that Jesus is God sent here by the Father. And the whole gospel really is evidence to prove that. There you have a phrase that is really the 
basis for the entire gospel. God sent his only son to earth out of love to save mankind. The one who sent me. And after the townspeople come out uh, and talk to Jesus, they invite him uh, to come and stay with them. And so he does for two days. And then departs. Now, that sounds like a pretty straightforward, does it not? What the story is really saying here is Jesus is trying to woo the Samaritan people in general. This woman not only represents herself, but she represents all of the Samaritan people that God is trying to bring into the fold. This is one of the changes that he is making. Uh, Up till now, remember in other gospel writings where Jesus sends out his uh, disciples, uh, the 72, and he sends them out two by two, and he sends out the apostles also, and he tells them not to go into Samaria uh, because it's not ready yet. Even afterwards, in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, when some of the disciples start to go into Samaria, the Holy Spirit tells them not to. There are certain reasons why. But Jesus is now making a change here that the Samaritan people and all people will be welcomed into his plan of salvation if they accept him and his teachings. There's another thing here, too, in the fact that Jesus is really talking not only about this woman, but by about the entire history of the Samaritan people. They have been ostracized from Judaism for uh, seven or eight hundred years, and now it's time to end that. And he wants to welcome them all. Uh, the five husbands that she had, or that the Samaritan people had, are really the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks. Okay? And the husband that she is now living with is the Romans. They were under the domination of all of those countries all through that time period. And now it's time that it is to be ended. The idea here where she talks about they worship on Mount Gerizim and yet she knows that the Jewish people worship only in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, that is going to be changed. And it won't make any difference because worship will be in the heart and soul and the mind of all individuals and not in any one specific place. 
So you have these various changes that Jesus is trying to get, but you come to them only if you really understand the religious or the um, theological side of these stories. And we'll see a lot of that as we go along. What looks like is a simple little story on the surface has really got a significant underlying base. Any questions on this so far? Yes, ma'am. Oh, the five husbands? All right. Yeah. All right. The Assyrians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. Okay. The Medes. Yeah. Medes and were part of the people that conquered Babylon. Yes, sir. Uh, probably not. They were all Mid-Eastern people, um, so there wasn't really that much different. The language different was different. The customs were different. Yeah, uh, their food and so forth was different. But as far as appearances, no. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, Dick. Probably a little of both. Yeah. Uh, what Dick is really saying is that really is that really the way it was intended? All right, and I think yes, it was intended that way. And but you don't find a lot of people uh, referring to that. In fact, in all of this book here, which goes into a great deal of detail, that is not mentioned. So some people agree with it, some people don't. And that's true throughout this gospel. It's a, it's a controversial gospel in many ways. Uh, but I think it has a place here. And that's why I brought it up. Okay. And you're going to find that throughout the gospel. There will be some uh, interpretations, you might say, uh, that go beneath the surface. And some people will accept them and others won't. The woman left her water jar. Again, I said that uh, water jar uh, was an indication of an empty faith. And there are little uh, other details in there. But I think you got the message. I'd like to move on. Okay. Uh, They now go back up to Galilee and to Cana. And you have uh, the cure of a royal official, which is pretty straightforward. Um, I don't see uh, a lot of uh, importance there, except the fact that Jesus is able to cure somebody that is not in his presence. All right. Remember, in this case, he tells the uh, royal official, go your way, your son will live. And it takes a great deal of faith in the royal official to just accept that and go away. And, of course, when he does on his way home, 
his servants run out, out after him to say that the son has been cured. Isn't the big deal that he cured a Gentile person a Jew? In a way, it's another sign of a change that his um, ministry, you might say, is now to all mankind, not just to the Jews. Well, well, that that's in another gospel, where he's talking to the to the woman, and, and she asks for uh, a cure, and he says, "I'm not going to, you know, a Jew doesn't." I forgot the exact words, uh, but yeah, something about throwing uh, pearls to the dogs or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but see, that's in a different gospel. So, again, the timing of these events here are not in chronological order. They're taken out of uh, a context, you might say, of time and used for specific purposes. No, but it's a sign, again, of change. Let's go on to uh, the cure on the Sabbath. You have really two parts to this story here. Not only does he cure this man on the Sabbath, but then he goes into a long teaching on what the meaning of the Sabbath is all about. There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is a there is a in Jerusalem at the sheep gate a pool called in Hebrew Bethsaida <laughs> or Bethesda depending on how you want to pronounce it and of course we have a Bethesda in Maryland which is the seat of the uh, Walter Reed Hospital and the seat of all government medical care. Okay. It says uh, a pool called uh, in Hebrew Bethesda with five uh, porticles or porches. In these lay a number of ill, blind, lame, crippled. One man has been there uh, ill for 38 years. You'd think he would have given up by this time. Eh? Okay. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been ill for a long time. He said to him, do you want to be well? And the guy thought, well, that's a dumb question, you know. Uh, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm on my way, someone else gets down there before me. Now, this being a natural pool, uh, of course, the legend here is that an angel of God stirs the water and whoever gets in there first is going to be cured. Well, they tell us that if this is a natural pool. Uh, the spring from which it comes every, every so often will sort of regurgitate uh, extra water from uh, an unknown force. So that's what really causes the stirring of the water, so to speak. 
says, um, Jesus said to him, rise and take up your mat and walk. Immediately, the man became well, took up his mat and walked. Now, you see, in this story, the man isn't asking for anything. Jesus is questioning him, which is sort of contrary to other gospel stories. But it is used here, really, not so much to talk about the miracle itself. And this is the second miracle uh, out of the seven that will be in this book. But it is the basis for what is to come. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to carry your mat. He answered him, The man who made... Uh, who made me well, told me to take up your mat and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who talked? So forth and so on. So they're questioning. They want to find out. They forgot all about the idea that this man who had been ill for 38 years is now walking around carrying his mat. They could care less about that. What they're trying to do is find out who did something wrong on the Sabbath. And, of course, they're beginning to see that Jesus is drawing a great deal of attention uh, to himself because of these miracles. All right. And let me digress for just a moment here. The whole idea of miracles was to support what Jesus is saying. There's a second purpose also was to draw attention to him to hear what he is saying. And the miracles were to back up that. Jesus was not here just to work miracles. He had a divine heart of compassion, yes. But the miracles were kind of secondary to his major purpose of hearing his message. And it was to all of the miracles, regardless of whether this book or any of the others. The miracles were to draw attention to what he's saying and to back up what he's saying. And that was true all the way to the resurrection. Because remember, as I said last week, even though it was the face of Jesus on that cross, it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's only one God. So the man went and told the Jews that Jesus was the one who had made him well. And therefore the Jews began to persecute Jesus because he did this on the Sabbath. They totally neglected or uh, overlooked the fact that he did a tremendous grace and benefit for this poor guy. Uh, all they were concerned with was that he broke one of the laws on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is at work until now, so I am at work. And for this reason, the Jews tried all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also called God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, that's unfortunate 
but it supports why Jesus is making these changes. Because down throughout history of the Old Testament, for a period of approximately 2,000 years, the Jewish people were told that eventually God was going to send them a prophet like Moses. I read that last week out of uh, the book of Exodus. That God was going to send them a prophet like Moses. And the prophets that came later during the period of the monarchy re-emphasized that. That eventually there would be somebody to replace what these people had been learning and would replace the monarchy and would do a lot of changes. And you would think that when a person like Jesus, who created, I mean, who, who worked all these miracles and did other things that were so different, you would think that they would do some research to think about how is this man fitting into our... Um, our history and our culture of looking for a prophet like Moses. But they didn't. And why didn't they? It's because they had their own agenda. They were trying to protect their jobs. They were trying to protect their way, their culture, and their belief. And they didn't want anybody to change it. And here, God, through Jesus, was making changes now. And, of course, this animosity builds up until the crucifixion. Okay. But did the Jews at that time, have a right as we have No. 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 And his question is, do the Jews have a central authority? Uh, and no. They did at the time of Christ. So that was the high priest. Okay. And for a number of years, the high priest and the priestly class grew out of their captivity of Babylon. All right. And from the time of Babylon in the, sixth, at the end of the 6th century B.C. to the destruction of the temple, the high priest was really the chief, the chief muckamuck, you might say, <laughs> in Israel. Even though, you know, you had various kings there. Uh, it was the high priest that really ruled the roost. Okay? Um, does that serve or answer your question? Yeah. But today, there is no central authority in Judaism. No. No. Once a person is ordained a rabbi, he or she can do virtually anything. Yeah. Okay. All right, now we have this, this whole idea of, of uh, Jesus curing on the Sabbath. And he goes into this rather long uh, dissertation here, you might say, on the work of the Father. And the whole idea is, of course, the Sabbath. The idea of the Sabbath came out of the story of creation from Adam and Eve, where God created for six days and then rested on the seventh. But 
that wasn't always true, even in Judaism. Because the book of Genesis, in which you find the creation stories, wasn't written until the 5th <coughs> the fifth century B.C., long after uh, Judaism had been in existence for more than a thousand years. During that more than a thousand years, they did honor the seventh day, but not to the point where they did as far as or during the time of Christ. After the Babylonian captivity, they took the book of Deuteronomy and they, oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> they took the book of Deuteronomy and really minced it down to every minute detail and tried to live according to it. And they went, of course, to the opposite extreme of living to the nth detail of every word and ignored reality, ignored the needs of the people. But the Sabbath, again, comes from that seventh day, uh, and no work could be done. And they totally ignored uh, helping people. Uh, they totally ignored the fact that babies were born, that people died on, on Sunday. Uh, they totally ignored so many other things, and they wanted to adhere to the letter of the law. And Jesus, again, is now trying to change that. Yes, one day out of the week is the important, and I'm going to kind of not bother with all of the words here, uh, but one day out of the week, we should stop and rest our bodies because if we went to work for seven days, week after week after week, afterwards we'd be no good to anybody. All right? The body is just in need of a time of rest. But at the same time, the soul is in need of a time to worship. And when you put those together at the same time, when we are resting from everyday work, that is the perfect time to engage in worship, which can be actually a rest for the soul as well. So, the Jewish people, you know, took the third, third commandment is, I think I said fourth last week, which was wrong. It's terrible when you have to hear yourself over and over again <laughs> when you're correcting those CDs, you know. Um, they totally ignored the needs of the people. And what Jesus is trying to do here is to get them to see that you have to have a balance even today in Catholicism, you have to have a balance of respecting the needs of mankind, the everyday needs of mankind, but also respecting the religious authority, the religious homage that we owe to our God. If we totally forget God, 
then what good is our everyday life? And so, again, a healthy balance is necessary. And that is what he is trying to to get at here. I want to draw your attention here on page 32. Beginning on verse 24 in the upper right side of page 32. says, Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in the one who sent me, there it is again, the one who sent me, has eternal life and will not come to condemnation. Important because if we believe that Jesus is God and was sent from God the Father, then we should obey what he says and follow what he says. Okay. Will not come to condemnation, but has passed from death to life. Now we're talking about spiritual death. Amen, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Have you ever stopped to think about when we say the Apostles' Creed, he entered into hell. All right. And wondered about that. What does that mean? No, no, no. The word is hell. Yeah. Well, that's it. You see, the word hell is sort of a misunderstanding, you might say, or a misinterpretation, or mistranslation is a better way of putting it, uh, because we don't have a word or didn't have a word at that time uh, for purgatory, okay? Uh, in the Jewish language, it would be he entered into the abode of the dead who were waiting for him and waiting for his uh, crucifixion and resurrection. You see, everybody, or, or let's put it this way, the gates of hell, uh, the gates of heaven were closed from the time of Adam and Eve to the time of Christ's uh, crucifixion and resurrection. So, there were a number of people, millions and millions of people, who died in the good graces of God, but could not enter into heaven because the price of our redemption had not been paid. And so when Christ died, quite often as kids we used to say, well, we know he died on Friday and he rose on Sunday. Where did he go and what was he doing in those that time in between? All right. This sort of answers that in a way. He went to the abode of the dead to bring forth all of those who died in the good graces of God but could not enter into heaven until he did die and pay the price for our salvation. Does that make sense? I hope it clears up uh, anyone that may have 
been concerned about that. Limbo? No, we sort of want to get, we don't want to talk about the word limbo because there is no theological basis for limbo. Okay? It's either heaven or hell. Okay? And, of course, in talking about limbo, you're thinking about those poor babies who died before they were baptized. Are you not? Yeah, that's what most people refer to when they think of uh, the word limbo. No, those babies will go to heaven. There is no doubt about that. And we don't have to worry about that as well. Because if they never had an opportunity to know Christ because they died before uh, they were, uh, you know, old enough to know anything, uh, God's not going to send them to hell. You know, the poor kids have had their life cut short, therefore they deserve to go to heaven. And that's the teachings of the church. Yeah. Okay. Throughout this whole section, it talks uh, really about the fact that it says, I cannot do anything on my own. I judge as I hear, and my judgment is be just because I do not seek my own will. This is Jesus speaking. But the will of the one who sent me. In other words, Jesus was the face of God, coming to earth to do the work of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so whatever he does, it is not just Jesus the man, but Jesus the God. And that's important that we kind of think about that because I've heard people say, well, he was just a man and, you know, uh, he could say anything or whatever uh, and sort of dismiss the importance of what Christ said. But Christ never said anything, or at least to our knowledge, uh, there are no scriptures where Christ has said anything that can be dismissed. You know, several years ago, there was uh, a seminar, you might say, I believe it was in Texas, where a group of uh, so-called theologians got together to discern out of all of Scripture what was true and what wasn't. And I think we had this discussion here a couple sessions ago. Uh, You can't do that. All of Scripture is inspired. But you have to be very careful on the interpretation of it. And when you're comparing it with common everyday language, you have to be extra careful. Because as Dick just pointed out, I use the word dead in two different ways here. And I used it, I believe, correctly. But a lot of people won't catch that. And it becomes confusing. So you kind of have to understand the background of a lot of these stories. uh, And that's why just reading scripture, in other words, just taking the Bible and reading it as it is, without reading what other people have uh, thought about it and and understood it as and interpreted it, etc. When you put them together, 
that's what gives you the truer picture. And there's so many of these books that I do really recommend if you're interested in getting deeper into any of the books of the Bible. There are several commentaries available through various publications. Um, this came from Paulus Press. Uh, that it's we recommend that you go to a more in-depth commentary. Um, let's go over to page 34. It says, I do not accept human praise. Moreover, I know that you do not have the love of God in you. And here he is, again, is he talking to the, the Jewish people. The love of God and the whole idea of their love for God was not in them because they did not have a relationship, a personal relationship with God. And that's what Jesus is trying to instill here. I came in the name of my Father, but you do not accept me. Yet, if another comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe when you accept praise from uh, one another and do not seek the praise that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you because the Father, the one who will accuse you, is Moses, in whom you have placed your hope. For if I had believed Moses, I'm sorry, if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote about me. And that again is in that reference I talked about last week. Uh, that's the book of Exodus chapter 18, verse 18. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, the people have ignored all the teachings not only of Moses, as it is uh, repeated in the book of Deuteronomy, but all of the prophets. Remember, there were 15 different literary prophets, all of whom, who in one way or the other, some in more detail than others, uh, reported that there would be a Messiah, or uh, somebody who would be the anointed one of God coming to earth, and giving these people the opportunity for eternal life. And yet, the Jewish people are the ones to ignore their own writings. All of those same prophets were mur murdered by their own people because the people didn't like what they wrote. And now they are putting Christ on trial, you might say, just as the prologue uh, foretold. And they don't understand what they're actually doing. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. 
because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And, of course, they didn't. They didn't believe Christ. They didn't believe Moses. They didn't believe the prophets. And so, that is the reason that the temple was destroyed. God said, enough is enough. And the new covenant that was made was made through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and signified by the blood of the cross. And more importantly, in a way, to open up to all mankind who do believe in Christ and live according to his teachings. Now, that second part, living according to his teachings, is very important. Because if you just believe and you don't follow through with living that way, then you are creating a bigger problem than you started with. So, you will be more responsible to the Father when you reach the pearly gates when he says, I gave you all of this information and you understood it but you didn't live according to it. Why? And therefore, you don't deserve to come in and live happily ever after, so to speak. Okay. You see now what this gospel is getting to? The whole idea of God sends Christ, his son, to earth to save mankind by renewing the plan of salvation. And you all are familiar with God's plan of salvation, I'm sure. We've talked about this. We've showed, showed you this uh, illustration here many times. Kind of get to understand what that's all about. Because as we go through this gospel here, I will constantly be referring back to that. Because that is why Christ came to earth in the first place. Is to help us to understand that it is a personal relationship that will get us into heaven. Not just by doing good things for our own reasons. And that is the sad thing about it. And again, please, I am not putting down the Jewish people. There are a number of Jewish people who have done tremendously great things. Uh, they contribute millions and millions of dollars to various good causes. And they do a lot of good work. It is why they do it that God has a problem with. Most of it is done out of their own desires to make themselves feel good uh, for tax purposes. You know, none of those are wrong in themselves, but they are all earth-based. They have nothing to do with a deeper relationship with God. 
And that is what he is crying over. And that is what we are trying to have you understand by the studying of the Gospel of John. John's Gospel, which is often called the Gospel of Love, really is trying to foster a personal love or a personal relationship between you and Christ. It's not talking about, uh, you know, ministry within the church, or that is one way of doing it. Uh, You know, it's not talking about what you should do or can do, because that's different for each person. Each of you should be taking all of what you're learning here and praying about it. And asking the Holy Spirit what you should be doing if you're not already doing it. What does God want of you? Because that's where it all really comes down to. What does God want of you? So that you can understand and fulfill that. Because that is what you are going to be judged on when you get to the pearly gates. It's not how much money you donated to what cause, this cause or that cause. You know, it is not the fact that you were a good person. Uh, it is what did you do in accordance with fulfilling what God wanted out of you. And you see, the Jewish people weren't concerned with what God wanted of them personally. They wanted what they felt was to enhance their own causes or to make them look good or to make them feel better or whatever. But God, hmm, no connection. And he's going to say, as he has in, uh, let's see, Luke's Gospel, I believe it's chapter 12, uh, when we get to the pearly gates, you, you know, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. And so forth and so on. And they say, well, you know, we didn't see you naked. We didn't see you hungry. Because they're not looking that we are all representative of God in some way. There's a little story about an old abbot who meets up with an old Jewish friend of his. And the abbot is saying, you know, I'm really concerned about my monastery. All of the monks are getting pretty old and there's no new ones coming in. I don't know what's going to happen when we get down to the last few. Uh, Will they be able to take care of each other? And so the rabbi says, you know, I have an idea. Let me think about it, and let's come back in a few days, and I'll tell you. So they meet again in a few days, and the rabbi says, I have a solution. He says, do you know that one of your monks is Christ in disguise? And the habit said, no, really? He said, yes, one of your monks is Christ in disguise. 
And he said, well, yeah, but what's that got to do with, you know, the getting young ones in? He said, never mind. You just take that back and ask Christ to help you. So he goes back and he's thinking about this. So he calls the monks together and he said, one of you is Jesus Christ. I don't know which one, but I was told on good authority that one of you is Jesus Christ. And I think we should start thinking about that. So after a few days, you know, <clears throat> Monk Joe is walking, you know, and he's looking at Monk Pete coming by. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> You know, maybe he's Jesus Christ. You know. uh, here's another Abbot Michael. Good morning. Maybe, maybe he's Jesus. I better be careful. You know, one by one, the love of each other begins to grow and flourish, and some of the townspeople begin to see that, and one by one they start getting a few people that want to come in and join them and be part of this loving group that is there in the monastery. And after a few years, the monastery is filled with young people because they all find out that they are part of love. And that is what Jesus Christ is. Love. Simple as that. Any questions? My goodness, I left you spellbound. <laughs> yes, yes, Ernie? What Ernie says is that, as I read to you out of the book of Exodus, chapter 18, when Moses went up to the mountain, you know, there was thunder and lightning and fire and clouds, etc., etc. And this was extremely frightening to the Jewish people. So when he comes down, he said, they say to him, you be our go-between. We don't want to talk to him. We don't want to get involved in all of that thunder and lightning and smoke and so forth and so on. Um, and... Unfortunately, that became part of their culture. They didn't want a personal relationship with Christ. But as time went on, it, was became, it became so foreign to them that even today, they do not have a personal relationship. And that is where they miss out. Uh, the whole idea of love being from God and part of God, and who God is, is very important. And we can't forget it. And still the door is open. And still the door is open, yes. Yes, yes, Eleanor? I just find it interesting that he uses women, uh, the woman at the well to go and spread the news, Mary Magdalene at the tomb to run and spread the news. Well, yes, and you know, that's it. I'm glad you reminded me, because... Um, Yes, he did. and that's not a cultural thing. That's almost against the culture. There's another thing. Have you ever wondered why 
Jesus began his ministry in Galilee and went back to Galilee so often, it is because Judaism was the center of hardcore faith. But as you got further and further away, people were more inclined to question a lot of that. Also, in northern Israel, there was a lot of intermingling of other nationalities. And the people were much more accepting of things that were not Jewish. Uh, they would at least uh, ignore them politely uh, and not condemn them, you know. But in Jerusalem, it was hardcore. And Jesus was looked upon almost as an enemy of the Jewish people. So it was easier for him to begin his ministry in Galilee, where people were more accepting than it was down in Jerusalem. But eventually, because of tradition uh, and various prophecies, fulfillment of prophecies, he had to die in Jerusalem. Okay, let's end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for blessing us with the, not only permission, but the commission of studying Holy Scripture. We thank you for this freedom of giving us the right to discern what it is that you want for us and from us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the many graces and blessings that you have given us through the church, through scripture. We ask that you open our minds and our hearts to help us to understand what it is that you want of each of us on a personal basis. So we thank you for this time and we ask your blessing as we go forward in our continuance of the study of the Gospel of John to really understand the meaning that is so well hidden there. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all thanks. In Jesus' name.